Well, it is my pleasure to be able to worship with you today, and I've chosen as the text for this morning, Psalm 78, and we're going to read verses 1 through 8 to start. I would ask that you would be willing to stand as we read from God's Word, for it is His holy, inspired, and authoritative Word. Psalm 78, 1 through 8, give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth, and I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He has done. For He has established in Jacob, and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God. But keep his commandments, and may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright, and whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is the Word of God. Amen. 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 Would you join me in prayer? Father, as we commit ourselves to learning from Your Word today, give us the ears to hear. Give us the meditation to concentrate and to focus upon what You would tell us. And Lord, give us the willingness to apply these things to our lives. We love you. We look forward to what you will teach us through your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in Psalm 78, we hear these passionate words of Asaph, who was one of David's three chief musicians. And not only was he a musician, but according to 1 Chronicles 25, the Holy Spirit prophesied through him. And one of my greatest delights over the years has been telling my children and and now my grandchildren stories. And these are important stories to, to family culture. They give substance to life. They tie the past to the present. They strengthen memory. And that's true not only of the personal stories of our family, but also the stories of the broader family of God's people. And Psalm 78 tells us that stories have an even greater purpose. Asaph, the author of Psalm 78, says that we tell these stories to our children so that the generation to come may know them, and that they may arise and declare them to their children. Why? It's an important question from Psalm 78. Asaph says that there is something about knowing the stories that causes the next generations to hope in God and to keep His commandments. And there is a connection between learning the works of God and having a hope in God. There's a connection between learning the stories of God's people and loving God with all of our heart and mind and strength. And you may think of the Psalms as the poetic worship songs of Israel, but Psalm 78 is is a little different. We can see right from the beginning when Asaph says, Give ear, O my people, to my law, and incline your ears to my mouth, that he is teaching. And he is teaching some important lessons. 
The phrase, give ear, in Hebrew is azan, which means to listen with an understanding that leads to obedience. It's, it's really saying, when, when Asaph states, incline your ears, that he wants them to stretch forth their ears much like a dog pricks up its ears when he hears a sound, or like a soldier who stands at attention at the words of his commander. And Asaph is saying, don't just sit there. Stretch out your ears. Yearn to hear what I'm going to say. Even lean forward in your, I would have said chairs, but pews, and catch every word today. Don't miss a syllable. To whom is Asaph speaking? He is speaking to parents. Fathers in particular, as verse 5 reveals. And while the local church, you know me, those of you who know me, I want to inspire a high view of the church and our people. But though the local church is important and vital to God's people, note that Asaph is not laying the responsibility of telling these stories at the feet of the Levites. He's not saying that those who hold a public position as the spiritual leaders of the community are to tell these stories to the people, although that is part of their job. He places the primary responsibility upon parents. John Knox, the 16th century father of Presbyterianism, said in a letter to refugees in Geneva, Fathers, you are bishops and kings. Your wife, children, servants, family are your bishopric, and it shall be required of you to carefully and diligently instruct them in God's true knowledge, to plant virtue in them, and to repress vice. I like even how we read in Job chapter 1, where it says, His sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would tend and invite their sisters to eat and drink with them. And so it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And so he did this regularly. And one of the proofs of Job's righteous life is that he was the spiritual leader of his home. And as a righteous man, he felt this obligation to act as priest and offer, in this time, sacrifices on behalf of his children. And the text indicates that the children were present, and he would sin for them, and he would sanctify them. Very interesting. And note, this is not just an occasional practice. The text says that he did this regularly. Some of the other translations capture a bit more of the language they say continually. And so Job is believed, you probably know this chronologically, to refer to the earliest period of Old Testament history after the first ten chapters of Genesis. And if that's true, then in Job's time there was no official priesthood. So you can see it that this is the very first worshiping community, the family... And the very first corporate worship was family worship. And it may be one reason why the Puritans often likened the family to a church. A society of Christians, William, uh, Richard Baxter said, 
combined for the better worshiping and serving of God. And then William Perkins agreed and said, these families wherein the service of God is performed are, as it were, little churches, yea, even a kind of paradise upon earth. The question is, is this how you see your family? In Genesis 18-19, God tells Abraham that He chose him so that He might command His children and in His household after them to keep the way of the Lord. And if you think about that for a moment, how would Abraham have taught his children? There was no corporate church yet. Abraham would have had to have taught them at home. And throughout the time of the patriarchs, there was no one to gather with for worship other than those in one's own household. And yet the worship and truth of God continued to be passed on generation after generation through this family. And with the exodus from Egypt came the formal ordinances of corporate worship. But even in the midst of giving His people the law and establishing them as a nation of people for His sake, God underpins the importance of the Word being taught in the family when in Deuteronomy 6 He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart and you know many of you the rest of the words, right? You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets before and between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And I know that that's a familiar passage, perhaps too familiar, and we may not be affected by it anymore like we should be. The Hebrew word there translated diligently as in diligently teach in Deuteronomy 6 is used elsewhere to describe this repetitive action of sharpening a knife. Some translate the passage, some of the other versions, as you shall repeat them to your children. Think of that, you know, constantly sharpening. You shall repeat them. Another translation says, you shall impress them upon your children. And the images of our children as these dull blades that need to be constantly sharpened against the whetstone. By whom? By us, their parents. And we are to bring God's Word before our children on a continual basis. That's what God told Abraham, what He told Moses, and what we hear in Psalm 78. God's law and the story of His people, the history are all to be the subjects of conversation both inside and outside of the home by the time you rise up to the time that you go to bed. And the point is, right, that our lives are to be saturated in God's Word. In the remembrance and the celebration that we belong to our covenant King. That everything we do serves its purpose. In fact, when we gather together as the corporate body of God's people and as His bride, it should be the culmination and the climax of this week of teaching and training and diligently speaking of the Word of God so that as we come through the door, we say, have you been talking? Yeah, I've been talking about it. Have you been talking about that? I've been talking about that. So that we all come rejoicing. Right? 
and we share together in the praise of our God. Well, maybe nowhere is the importance of worship in our homes more clearly seen than here in Psalm 78. And we see it emphasized when Asaph writes, I will open my mouth in a parable and I will utter dark sayings of old. Those which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. And you may know from studying the parables in the Gospels that the parables, while they may be common sayings or stories, they, they have this profound core teaching that is understood only the, by those who are taught by God. And these parables by Asaph are stories from the past, probably familiar stories. And yet they contain these deep, profound truths. What Asaph says are dark sayings. And by dark, Asaph is actually meaning obscure or difficult. So hidden in these common stories were obscure truths that we need to pay attention to here. And we might even say overlaid on that, this idea of dark sayings would be that many of these parables speak of Israel's failures. Sometimes this is the most important type of story. Children need to know that when their ancestors lost perspective, when they responded to difficult times with fear or with disobedience or a lack of faith and couldn't correctly interpret their situation, that they often acted with fear. They often acted without faith. And instead... Their children, these children, needed to remember the loyalty and promises of God. And thus they themselves would better face their own trials. We don't want Abraham's words to Abimelech in Genesis 20 to be true of us. Surely the fear of God is not in this place, right? We want the fear of God in our place. And our children need to learn to not lose perspective in the midst of trial. Friends, when your child wonders about what is right and what is wrong, don't just threaten her with the law of God. Draw her with the grace of God as well by showing her how God has repeatedly been faithful to His promises in the wake of human rebellion. When your son struggles with courage, tell him the stories of the Israelites who also struggled with courage. Tell him, oh, God's strength was sufficient to enable Israel to overcome Jericho or Christ to endure the cross. Inspire your children with God's holiness and His mercy and justice, grace, and love. But you know what? I don't think Asaph is just pointing to teaching moments. He's talking about a systematic, purposeful, regular teaching. In fact you strategically looking for ways to build the training of your children into the life of your home. Just as Paul told Timothy that Timothy's grandmother had entrusted a good deposit of teaching into her grandson, so we need to make a good deposit into the lives of our children. So tell them these stories. Let's look at one of them in verses 9-11. through 11. Asaph here recounts an episode that took place with the tribe of Ephraim. We don't know exactly what event this describes. Some believe it to be the loss of the ark to the Philistines during the life of Samuel. But whatever event this is, if we look at verse 9, the children of Ephraim being armed with 
and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in His law and forgot His works and His wonders that He had shown them. And what we see there is that this previous generation faced a difficult trial. They had the opportunity to trust God through that trial, but instead they did not keep the covenant. They forgot that God always provides the strength and grace to weather difficulties. And I don't want you to miss a few of the important details in this this particular account. These men were children of Ephraim. Ephraim was the younger son of Joseph, but he was treated by Jacob as receiving through him the, the greater blessing, if you will, the firstborn. And when Jacob blessed Joseph and through him the two tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, Jacob said, his bow, listen to that, his bow remained in strength. And his arms were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the blessing of the Lord upon Ephraim is that his bow will remain strong by the hand of God. And yet Asaph tells us that the children of Ephraim, while being armed with carrying bows, the very things that should have been the instruments of strength, the weapons of strength, against all expectations turned back in the day of battle. That means that they were dressed for war, that they were stationed for battle, and that they had every intent of fighting. But at some point they turned their backs and ran right in the face of victory. Our son Caleb used to strap a belt around his waist and tuck a homemade sword against his side and do battle. But if one of his older siblings so much as said boo, he was running in terror. Now he's here today, and I want to emphasize that this was quite a long time ago, at least eight months, (laughs) eight years. And we don't want that to be the picture of our spiritual lives. How are you and your children doing in the face of battle? Is your family marching out with the confidence of victors? over temptation only to learn that the enemy is strong and then turn and run under the heat of oppression. I can't imagine what it must have been like for people in the Scriptures who had truly difficult tasks. Moses talking to the Pharaoh, leading the Israelites out of Egypt. Isaiah the prophet who told by God to go and proclaim the message to people none of whom will hear. And in fact, we'll later kill him. Or Paul, who was imprisoned multiple times and whipped, bitten by poisonous snakes, right? You know the whole list of things. Or even the children of Ephraim fighting a battle in what must have seemed lopsided odds, enough to make them turn in fear. How do we face the day of battle? How do we not run like Ephraim? Well, the answer is perspective. The Ephraimites lost perspective. They forgot the way that God works. They forgot the stories of the past. And therefore, they couldn't interpret correctly their situation. If they had just remembered not only the faithfulness of their covenanting God and how He operates, but 
the fact that God gives strength to his people to persevere often by coming in their moments of weakness and utter dependence. That's one of the most common themes in these stories when God works through past generations. It is that true power is paradoxically found in weakness. And I shared at Presbytery a few days ago how Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 that this message, this theme is foolishness to those who are perishing. As it says, Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And the world today is no different than the world of Paul's time. People still seek after miracles. They still seek after worldly wisdom. And Paul says the foolishness of God is greater than all of that. I mentioned at Presbytery, I just asked the question, what, what could possibly be the foolishness of God? Especially when God in Him has hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I didn't share specific examples, but I wanted to share a quick few with you today. Because they're part of the stories of our faith. One of the first examples of God's, quote, foolishness was Noah. And the Lord said to him, build a tavach, which in Hebrew is a box, for a hundred years in the middle of a dry land. You can imagine the reaction of the neighbors. What are you doing, Noah? You and your sons. We're, we're building a box. That big? What are you going to do with it? Well, I talked with the Lord recently, and the creator of the universe told me there's going to be a lot of water around here. And they looked around in this pretty dry climate area, not anywhere close, besides the Jordan River, perhaps, or wherever they are, right? You can imagine this whole territory. And saying, what? What would you need this thing for? And this went on for years and years. This crazy old man and family hammering and sawing and building a box. And everyone laughed until foolish old Noah stepped into a box with his family and it started to rain. I think I said the Jordan River a moment ago. I meant the Euphrates River, just to be clear. But, but still, Euphrates, Tigris, Jordan River, it's not the ocean. And up in the high desert of western Colorado where our family was digging for dinosaurs 20 years ago, we learned that buried you know, up, up in the, the northwest corner, right? Uh, we learned that buried in the same layer of dirt are land and marine animals. And it was, it was quite a privilege for us to be digging out at that particular time. And has, has anyone here ever done anything like that? So we were part of this field site uh, work trying to uh, jackhammer out the thigh bone of a brontosaurus is what we were working on at that moment. I, I know it sounds more glorious and romantic than it was. <laughs> Just imagine standing in a bunch of sandstone and all day for eight hours. I thought it was a great strategy by 
the group that was doing it is to get these volunteers to spend eight hours jackhammering out sandstone under their direction uh, and us going away going, wow, that was the experience of a lifetime. And then going, yes, we just had 17 people times eight hours of labor. But think about it. Jackhammering out the, the thigh bone of a brontosaurus just on the other side of this very small ravine was where they found the third complete skeleton of the allosaur. But right around the corner, same layer of ground and land were, remember, all these hundreds of squid fossils. How could that happen? There were all these parts of petrified tree limbs all pointing the same direction on the ground. How could that happen? The flood. So Noah built his box, and he built it in the face of every argument and every criticism, every bit of man's wisdom that laughed at the prospect of a flood, and he spent 120 years building, and then he got inside, and everyone laughed until... And there was another foolish man. His name was Moses. Psalm 73 reminds us that when the Israelites were caught between the Egyptian army, the desert, and the Red Sea, that they cried out, What are we going to do? And Moses said, Don't worry. Get everyone ready and walk up to the edge of the water. Are we going to swim? No. We're just going to stand. And wait. But they could see the army in the distance, right? They could see the dust clouds of the chariots. They could see the thousands and thousands of people that were dressed and ready for war. Maybe some of the men came up and, and bravely offered, shouldn't we maybe get ready to fight? Maybe put the women and the children behind us. If it's going to be a slaughter, let us go first. And Moses says, no, just wait. Well, what's the plan? And Moses says, I'm going to lift up my staff and the waters are going to split in half. Right? And two million people that day walked to the shore of the water and an 80-year-old man lifted up his staff and the waters parted. And so many people are skeptical of whether that really happened or not. They argue that what was the Red Sea was actually the Sea of Reeds and describe that there was probably a strong east wind and that it was probably marshy at that time of year. And so Moses and two million Israelites crossed through ankle-deep water. And then you ask, well, that was the miracle? I think people who argue like that in their attempt to reject the supernatural have actually given us a greater miracle than we ever asked because according to them, the entire Egyptian army was drowned in six inches of water. Right? <laughs> so we know that God who spun a billion galaxies into place and holds all things together by the word of His power can part the Pacific Ocean like an envelope if he wants. So split the Red Sea? Absolutely. Noah build a box where there's no water. Moses lift up your staff and I'll take care of the Red Sea. There were others. We don't have time to recount all those great stories, though I hope you will. 
with your children, Joshua at Jericho, Elijah before the prophets of Baal. Every single instance was foolish. Irrational, unreasonable, had nothing to commend itself to the wisdom of man. And yet God demanded it as a condition because the foolishness of God is wiser than man. And as I said also at Presbytery, the greatest foolishness of all was that God saved his people through a Jewish carpenter who died outside the walls of Jerusalem as a common criminal and yet is now personally resurrected and enthroned at his own right hand. And so the children of Ephraim went into battle in their own strength, forgetting that the God who told Noah to build a box, who told Moses to part the Red Sea, the God who does the impossible, who raises up the weak to destroy the mighty, might be wanting them to face impossible odds so that he would receive the glory. And so parents, regularly remind your children about that perspective. They need to know who they are and whose they are. They are the blood-bought children of a covenanting God. They are warriors called to fight in the great war to expand God's kingdom, and God will often call them to do the impossible. Skip down to verse 17, learn another pattern of the previous generations. They sinned. It says, even more against him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. And they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God and said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? The second pattern that fathers were to teach their children was that their ancestors consistently tested God by desiring the things of the flesh rather than the things above. And you can... You can see that with the Israelites, but can you see that happening with your own children? What do they most desire? Do they desire Christ and His benefits above all else? Or are their hearts captivated by other things? Are you telling your children of the one who is the very meaning of life? And is the good news of Christ a significant part of every lesson that you teach? Can you say that your teaching, even if it's in the driest of academic subjects, is saturated with the gospel and pointing to God? Have your children been reminded at the end of the day, can, can you say with joy that they've been reminded that God is their King and their Lord and been directed to their need for a Savior, told in some capacity about Christ's great love and provision? Many of us are aware of the enticing lure of our flesh. We know how easily our children are drawn away by their desires. And young people, when you hear me saying, your children, I want you to put yourself, you know, substitute for your children, me. Am I drawn away by my desires? Our typical response as parents is to remove things. We remove godless friends or music or television or everything that we might think would be an enticement. And I'm not suggesting that removal is a bad idea, but when you remove things from your children, replace what you've removed with something better. 
Many proactively discipline their children by sheltering them from the influence of the world that requires our children to sacrifice what their flesh desires. And obviously, we all know because it's true of ourselves, children, you know this of yourselves, given a chance, we want to sit for hours in front of the TV mindlessly or with video games, or we want to indulge in the sinful desires of our flesh or be lazy or prideful or selfish or any number of things But let me ask you parents this. Are you teaching your children why they are sacrificing these desires and activities? I say that. I say that as an exhortation because if your children know only a sacrifice without the reason why, they will simply think that their sacrifice is because they grew up in a strict home. They'll talk about how they can't wait to grow up to be adults so that they can make their own rules in their own homes. And they might not make the same rules. You know, I I grew up in a restricted home. My parents made some rules that I don't necessarily agree with. And as parents, we need to make sure that we go the rest of the way, as I said, and replace the sacrifice with something better, with joy. When you set the boundaries, when you discipline, you need to explain using the Scriptures that God's precepts are better than life, that we are all, Pilgrim sojourning in this world, we are looking forward to a prize that lies before us in the hope of a better place and an eternity with our Savior. And that's the same lesson that God was trying to teach the Israelites. Man doesn't live by bread alone. He lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And it's easy to trust God when He's just parted the Red Sea. It's easy to trust God when we see miraculous things going on around us. It's not as easy to trust God when we've been walking for a week in the desert and our mind starts dwelling on all the pleasant things that we've been giving up. And pretty soon we forget about the slavery that was associated with those things. And we only remember the pleasure. And so parents, you need to teach your children that no eye has seen. No mind conceived of the things that God has prepared for them. Young men and young women, you have not ever experienced close to what God has prepared for you. This this gets to be close. These great times of worship and fellowship of like-minded people and peace and unity, that's close. But I think it's just a foreshadowing and a foretaste of what there is to come. So that... When we remember those things, we can be like those in Hebrews 10.34 that are described as joyfully accepting the plundering of their property because they knew they had a better position in heaven. That's where we want to get. That's what we need to keep preaching to ourselves. We can't just stop tasting and seeing the world. We need to taste and see that the Lord is good. For He has milk and honey for us. And so the burden of your ministry as a father and a mother is to make plain to your family that the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. And if the love of God is better than life, then it's better than everything that the world offers. And that's why Asaph cries out in an earlier psalm, in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And my portion forever. 
Well, I encourage all of you to keep looking at Psalm 78. The remaining 50 verses recount how Israel rebelled against God over and over and over again. There are more stories to see, more lessons to be gleaned. And the point is, of course, that if you aren't teaching your children and young men and women, if you aren't learning the lessons from the past where the people of God fail to look to Him in faith, to delight in His ways, the results are devastating. You do not want to end up testing God and tempting Him and grieving God so that, as we see in verse 59, when God heard this, He was furious and greatly abhorred Israel. Oh, that we would not provoke the Lord in that way. So here are my challenges for you today. First, as I've already alluded to, this is to you parents, is your training and the environment of your home focused upon directing your children to God and encouraging godly maturity? Is every conversation saturated with the gospel? When our children were young, I had very few goals for them. I wanted them to grow up to be mature adults, and I wanted, them, I wanted to enjoy them as they matured. And that wasn't a bad desire, but it was very easy to define mature adult with an image of what I thought was a perfect young man or young woman. At that time, an educated, successful Christian who would marry an educated, successful Christian spouse. What was wrong with that picture? A lot. It was my own personal vision of what my children should look like as adults. It had little reference to their heart. Second, align your goals with God by learning the lessons of the past and commit to tell these to your children in order to train not just their external behavior, but also their internal character. When we focus on external behavior, we tend to rely heavily upon our authority in an attempt to bring our children under control. And the more our children deviate from our expected results, the more we begin to micromanage their lives and we assume that it, they will become compliant and in that sense they will become receptive to God's word. That's what we assume. If compliance means receptivity. Or saying it in a different way, we assume that by controlling the exterior behavior that somehow we are shaping the interior character. And what many of us fail to understand is that the opposite is true, that the interior character shapes the exterior behavior. Out of the wellspring of the heart, right? Solomon says, the mouth speaks and the body acts. So the question I have for you in that light is, have you been chiefly authoritarian in your approach to parenting? Are you beginning to see resistance? And it may be that you have been relying on fear as a motivator in your parenting. And parents who focus primarily on the external behavior of their children tend to parent through fear of consequence. They desire, even though they may not realize it, to, I'll even use the word, intimidate their children into subjection through the threat of punishment. And that is a form of provoking our children to wrath. 
Instead, the biblical approach to parenting is to win our children's heart into submission to God, especially by recounting the lessons of the past, our failures, and God's faithfulness. So parallel to discipline, which certainly the Bible talks about, is this warm retelling, recounting of stories in which you are included, your children are included, as we all learn from the lessons of the past. Last, realize that you cannot compel your children to love God. That's why we hear Solomon over and over again, My son, give me your heart. Let your eyes keep to my ways. Solomon obviously didn't think he had the wisdom to win their hearts or the power to manipulate them. He therefore appealed to his sons to make a decision to entrust their hearts to him. Now we were dealing with Psalm 78 today and we dealt with Psalm 69 and 105 earlier in the, in the teaching time. And the very intro to the book of Psalms is a crossroads decision. Psalm 1 Will you stand with the sinner and walk with the scornful and sit with the mocker? Or will you be planted like a tree in the water of God's Word? And it's that constant choice. My son, my daughter, give me your heart. What will you do? Blessed are they who do not follow that path. But blessed are those who plant themselves. Psalm 2, royal psalm. Why then do the nations rage and plot when they have heard of the judgment and how they will be blown like chaff in the wind? Right? Psalm 1. Question naturally flowing into Psalm 2. What is the answer? What is the instruction to the Christian believer? They are raging and plotting against God and against His anointed, which means you too. As I told our church not that long ago, sometimes we think of Psalm 1 as that image of, well, it's just two different paths that diverge, right? Like Robert Frost in the, in the, in the wood, and I took the one less traveled by. And so I took the narrow road, everybody else went the broad road, we said, see you later, and there they're standing and mocking and scorning and so on. But that's not what's happening according to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, they are raging and plotting against God and against His anointed one. So I said, imagine it like this, that you're walking down the street, let's say a busy city street, this crowd of people is walking your way. And our, our natural thought with Psalm 1 is to look at them as, you know, here, let me, let me move out of the way. It's, they're moving the broad way, you're moving the difficult way against traffic. But that's not what Psalm 2 implies. Psalm 2 implies that they, as they, you walk against them, their eyes are turned to you. God has anointed and His people, and their goal is to throw you into the street in front of the moving cars. That's the type of thing that I'm talking about, that is this constant conversation with our children, helping them to recognize who our enemy is, what the fight is about, what are the choices? We don't want to be like the evil that are and the wicked that are blown away like chaff in the wind. We want to be like the believer. But it's not going to be easy because the, the wicked are raging and plotting. They want to chop down the tree. 
They want to throw you in front of the car. So how do you stand? God works in times of weakness. How do we get to a point of faith? How are we strategically as as parents and families working through opportunities, for example, in service or whatever it may be, that our children are tested in small areas of seeming impossibility, learning to trust in God, have Him work through them, and fill them with His Spirit. So when it comes to the day of battle, like the children of Ephraim, they are ready to stand. This is such a sacred task, and some of you feel overwhelmed. It's easy to take the wrong turns in life. It's easy to wander off course, but men and women, Psalm 78 is saying, you cannot rest. You can't rest, because continued compromise and and resting prolongs the pain. It makes it worse. Take stock of your home. What things are more important to your families than the Lord? What vain things charm you and your children? What in your home and in your family life encourages them to live for something else or someone else other than God and His Son, Jesus Christ? There are times when, like Jacob, and one of my One of my favorite kind of correlations in Scripture in Genesis is this moment where Joshua, right, says to the people, choose this day whom you will serve. Will it be the gods of this land or will it be the Lord of hosts? Did you know that the tree that he's saying that to is the very tree into which Jacob planted the idols of his family? The terebinth tree. To me, that great correlation of Scripture is this moment where generations before, another man leading, in this case, his family, looking at the idols clutched in in their fists and the earrings in their ear, it's the description to say that they were enmeshed in the worldly culture around them, said, it's enough. The time is now that we need to turn the right direction as a family. And so he took all of that and symbolic of this commitment as a family, they dig a hole, they bury these things beneath this tree, and then generations later, here's Joshua saying, choose this to stay. Now, I like to imagine he's standing on top of the idols. But choose now this day whom you will serve. And wouldn't it be great if we were standing there today, looking out at our own families and saying, whom shall we choose today? And saying to our children, whom do you want to choose to serve today? Like Solomon, right? I think that's the question that's asked every day of your life. And I'm passionate about these things because I'm struck with the gravity of a calling as a father. Through years, I've watched... My children, as as they went through one situation after another, sometimes as my wife and I having to painfully debrief at the end of the day, what what had our son or our daughter's heart? And you guys, I'm not just talking about you. I'm talking about all your older siblings. 
but just constantly asking ourselves, are we teaching them the right things? Are we encouraging them to the right things? Are we emphasizing the truth? Are we loving God? Are we setting the right example? Are we trying to control our children just through authoritarian rule setting? Or are we actually walking alongside of them and telling them the stories of our great God? May the Lord give us all the will and the strength in both our homes and in the church to teach our children the testimony of the Lord. And may the generations to come not be like what we see in Judges, but may the generations to come see this great heritage of the Lord. Amen. Let me pray to close this. Father, I thank You for Your mighty and powerful Word. I thank You for teaching us through these sometimes dark and complex, obscure truths. How much more obscure could it be than to be remembering the lesson that You work through weakness? How much more obscure could it be than to learn the lesson that You teach us to sacrifice that which we desire in the moments and our flesh so strongly leads us to in order that we might be eternally satisfied by the joy that comes from Your hand and Your Word. And there are more lessons to learn, but I pray that we would be bold and desirous to learn them. I pray that You would be with each parent here as they teach their children. I pray that You would be with each young man and young woman as they think about the future for themselves, and I pray for the young children, Lord, that you would capture and shape their hearts, make them to be bold, mighty warriors for your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.